to the responsibility to protect. Word kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. I'm joined today by Savita Pandey, Executive Director of the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Thank you for joining us today, Savita. Thank you for having me, Jackie. Uh, By now, many of our listeners are likely familiar with the work of our organization, Uh, But for those who may not know you personally, can you tell us a little about your background in human rights and atrocity prevention and how you came to be with us at the Global Center and and now our executive director? Thank you, Jackie, for having me on the podcast. Really glad to be here and to talk about R2P and, um, and all the work that the Global Center is doing right now and the work that, uh, you know, I myself with the team have been doing uh, over the years. So as you know already, I have been with the Global Center really since uh, it was established in 2008, in June. So I joined the Global Center in June 2008. And since then, uh, I would say that I have grown up with R2P in a, in a particular way. Um, but before the Global Center, the way I came to human rights work and the work on atrocity prevention is um, definitely, um, you know, through my family, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family which uh, always talked about politics and, and protection and justice. And this came a little bit from the fact that, you know, we were displaced during uh, the India-Pakistan partition. And, and after that, sort of, you know, witnessing the, the, the communal riots in India against the Sikhs, we were living at that time with my grandparents and, you know, seeing the curfews and sort of the violence committed against the Sikh community. Um, and, you know, I, like many others from, I think that my generation and I think maybe also your generation, Jackie, were affected by seeing the images of the Rwandan genocide, seeing the events unfold in Yugoslavia. And also, I think that the 90s was such an important period in in the development of different norms. So, you know, from sort of the, the peaceful dividends or the peace dividends which came out of the Cold War, um, we saw different kinds of intervention, creation of different UN peacekeeping mechanisms, uh, secretary generals, which were very dynamic and sort of, you know, became kind of celebrities from Butros Butros Kali to Kofi Annan, uh, this all influenced sort of, uh, you know, even me living in India. And I also wanted to do some work in the international sphere. At that time, I did not so much have the language of atrocity prevention or human rights, but the language of sort of justice and protection was was very prominent in, in how I thought about uh, international relations. So when the job came up at the Global Center, um, it was very exciting to join 
uh, this new venture and sort of this newly created uh, space to think about these issues. And RTP itself was also very inspiring because, you know, as Gareth has always said, that this was sort of a new way of thinking about how the international community uh, reacts to what is happening uh, to populations around the world. And that you're, you should no longer be a bystander. It's not so much about international intervention, because that was something which did not sit very well with me, also given the sort of the post-colonial um, background and sort of thought processes that I was coming from. But sort of, you know, pivoting that to a responsibility um, to protect populations at risk of conscience shocking crimes like genocide, ethnic cleansing, war crimes and crimes against humanity. You said that you have sort of grown up with the Global Center, and um, that's definitely not an exaggeration, uh, given that the center was formed in February and you joined in, in June of 2008. The Global Center also, in many ways, grew up and evolved with R2P itself. The World Summit outcome document was adopted in 2005, just three years before the Global Center was formed. So being as you've sort of been there almost since the very beginning, how have you seen R2P evolve since the World Summit? And how has the work of the Global Center sort of come along with that evolution? Well, that's a, a fantastic question, Jackie. And I think that, you know, when I joined the Global Center in 2008, we were just on the cusp of the first report of the Secretary General coming out. And sort of the Sort of the change also happened between between 2008 and 2009 because still 2008, the sort of discussions about RTP were very much, even though we were talking in terms of responsibility to protect, it was very much couched still in the language of international intervention um, because, you know, RTP and its genesis and, and the policymakers around it and sort of the people who were really involved in thinking about it from the ISIS report to the World Summit outcome document was were again sort of um, coming from this uh, hangover of Rwanda and Yugoslavia and Kosovo, where you know the way we have understood and analyzed those situations was that if there were just boots on the ground or if there was no arms embargo in Yugoslavia. Uh, you know, if they were, if we were just able to sort of get international forces in at the right time, we would have prevented so much death and destruction. Um, and I think that with 2009, the first report of the Secretary General written by Ed Luck coming out, he sort of pivoted R2P a little bit in the context of that, yes, international uh, response, including sort of the sharpest end uh, in the toolbox is important, but he also sort of gave as much uh, importance to sort of the responsibility of the state, which is very much in paragraphs 138, 139, and also responsibility of the international community to assist in prevention of atrocity crimes, to assist in prevention of incitement. So I think that, you know, this three-pillar approach of Ed Luck really, um, really steeped R2P in... Um, in discussions and sort of made R2P uh, a norm which is about prevention. Uh, so from then to now, what I have seen is that um, pre-2008 and even, you know, 
in the early years, the discussions have changed from sort of just looking at RTP as a Western norm to looking at RTP as an international response, um, a norm which is about international response and international military response to something which is just the purview of Security Council members and the five permanent members to looking at RTP as something which is um, about the responsibility of state about taking intentional actions so that you create resilient societies where um, commission of atrocity crimes um, is not a possibility, to thinking about this as that atrocity crimes can happen everywhere. I think that the role of civil society has been pivotal in this because what we have been able to do is to change that narrative and consistently talk about atrocities that have happened in Europe and the so-called developed world or the so-called global north. Um, And we have sort of talked about the fact that how every society has to consistently work on the consensus on human rights, the consensus on what it means to protect minority rights, the consensus on, um, you know, curbing hate speech to come up with uh, good legislation, which not only prevents incitement, but actually also, um, you know, takes punitive actions against those who are trying to um, uh, incite across identity lines, across race lines, and, and, and so forth. I think one of the things that's interesting in how R2P has evolved and, you know, how even the Global Center has evolved along with it in the time since the center was formed is the way that the multilateral system has encountered countless challenges over the past 15, 20 years. Um, Challenges that were very different from what we were seeing in the post-Cold War period, as you mentioned earlier, and even in like the early 2000s. Um, And so I feel like many of the challenges the multilateral system has encountered have threatened its ability to uphold fundamental principles like the protection of human rights globally. And yet R2P has still evolved as threats to international law and the norms that sort of are meant to protect populations have increased. So what are your reflections on the global commitment or lack thereof to upholding R2P international law um, and other norms? I mean, you're absolutely right, Jackie, that there is this sort of uh, uh, dichotomy, uh, for lack of a better word, in terms of that in uh, in a world where we have seen over 100 million people displaced by conflict, atrocities, um, we have also seen sort of development of various uh, norms, including R2P, uh, protection of civilians, more sort of attention to um, uh, women, peace and security, uh, more attention to sort of how gender impacts all of these different protection agendas. So that's definitely true. And what we've also seen is around the world, um, from states to non-state actors, uh, you know, deliberately flouting international humanitarian law, international human rights law, uh, and, and, you know, committing even more atrocities. Uh, But at the same time, what we have seen is sort of the development of different um, uh, international norms. And in the sort of context of R2P, I think that what has happened is that there has been a, a consciousness around prevention of atrocity crimes 
that has come about. Um, so, I mean, you have the sort of the case of Libya, which is much talked about, but, you know, post-Libya, we saw the creation of two uh, international peacekeeping missions, one in Qar and one in Mali, which were very much prompted by um, the commission of atrocity crimes that were ongoing in both these situations and also sort of, you know, towards the prevention of these uh, atrocity crimes. So even though the, the Security Council or the members who were very much involved in the creation of these mechanisms did not necessarily fly the RTP flag, the consciousness was there. I would say the same thing about, I mean, we have seen the deadlock of the UN Security Council in the case of Syria as well as Myanmar, but then, you know, you see the General Assembly acting in a way where uh, we have created the IIIM on Syria and the IIIM, which are both mechanisms which are about preserving and collecting evidence uh, for um, from uh, preserving and collecting evidence so that we can, you know, one day take punitive action or hold those who have perpetrated atrocity crimes in both Syria and uh, Myanmar. We have again seen the Human Rights Council uh, in Geneva uh, take really deliberate action in um, towards justice and accountability in establishing the facts of a particular situation. I think that the fact-finding mission in Myanmar was instrumental in sort of outlining how a genocide against the Rohingya was committed. We have seen the the Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan doing excellent work, preserving evidence, sort of looking at root causes of atrocity crimes, but also sort of coming out with recommendations on how can the government and and other actors within South Sudan uh, can prevent further atrocities. And, 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 you know, I mean, in Venezuela, the, the fact-finding mission has served a deterrent uh, effect that just just by the fact that there is international scrutiny on a particular situation, we have seen uh, perpetrators, um, you know, perpetrators not taking as, uh, you know, strong actions as they would have otherwise. So in the face of all that, we have also seen sort of um, you know, more strides made towards how we think about different kinds of populations, how they're affected. But what still remains a problem and which you articulated in the question that you asked is the fact that um, atrocity crimes uh, or RTP still remains very much a boutique issue um, within governments, within uh, UN and within the international system. And because of the exceptional nature of atrocity crimes, most of the policymakers, uh, the entrenched sort of narratives, beliefs, and practices of how you look at a conflict situation um, still exist. So even though atrocity crimes happen in non-conflict situations, the the tendency always is to sort of you know look at the language, look at sort of policies which are about conflict prevention or resolution or look at democracy promotion or counterterrorism. Um, you know, the, 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 the way forward always for many of these policymakers is to look at political solutions or military solutions, which are many a times divorced from, um, you know, human rights and atrocity prevention, which, which are divorced from uh, con- conversations around transformation and inclusivity and justice. Uh, so, so that remains an issue. The other big sort of issue which remains with RTP very much is um, the fact that, I mean, you know, both of us have been working in this uh, 
this field for a very long time and both of us have been very instrumental in developing and nurturing the R2P Focal Points Network and also the group of friends, um, uh, you know, group of friends in both New York as well as in Geneva. But what we see also consistently is that although there are many champions, um, individual champions, governments who are championing, championing, the institutionalization of atrocity prevention still remains widely varied. So, you know, if somebody gets rotated out or suddenly if it's a new foreign minister or a new government, all the sort of, you know, progress that you have made towards institutionalizing R2P sometimes just gets lost. And we are again in the process of re-education and capacity building. And as you very much said in the question that you asked, that, you know, failures to uphold R2P, the destruction and sort of the, the results are so catastrophic that we really do not have sort of the capacity to, or the time to constantly build capacity, to constantly sort of, you know, talk about what the norm is all about and the conceptual, conceptual sort of beginnings of the norm. We want action. Um, so there are other norms, I would say, like WPS or children in armed conflict, not that there is no urgency about them. There is, of course, urgency about it. But when we fail to protect populations from atrocities, the failure is so stark that there is no space for forgiveness. And as a result of which, we constantly sort of hear this discourse about R2P has failed or R2P is, you know, no longer um, something which people support. But that's not true. You know, when you see what happened after the coup in Myanmar, that the populations, you know, demanding the responsibility to protect or, um, you know, what you see in, in South Sudan or Iran, that these populations are really fighting for democracy, fighting for their rights, that these kinds of discussions have no space. But, uh, you know, we consistently are always caught up between these uh, these discussions. And so, so sort of the final point on this is that, again, you know, norms like R2P do not have any individual agency. They rely on responsible actors to uphold them. Um, and And sort of that you know, goes sort of is the ebb and flow of history and is the ebb and flow within the international system. Some years we have good and great champions who are able to sort of act and think about um, innovative solutions. And, you know, in some years we do not see that. You know, a sign of, of people who have been working together for over a decade and who are on the same mental wavelength, I wrote down in my notebook here, the exceptional nature of crimes. And then the word exceptional nature of crimes came right out of your mouth 30 seconds later. Um, but I think it's it's important to highlight that um, because I think that people take for granted how exceptional atrocity crimes are and how exceptional R2P and the responses generated through R2P were originally meant to be. Um, <clears throat> you know, I remember being in the office when Libya happened and when the resolution was adopted. And, you know, it was it was one of those moments where you're almost all crowded around a computer watching the vote, which is not something people really do anymore. And and I think in that moment, a lot of um, folks who aren't policymakers, who aren't kind of within this space, sort of thought, well, okay, here's R2P's moment. A decision has been made in response to atrocity crimes, and now that it's been done once, it's going to be done again and again and again and again, without really appreciating that that was unique. It's the 
the kind of lack of response we see now is more the norm um, from the Security Council, that kind of exceptional moment in Libya, in Car, in Mali, um, are what we're striving for, but we're really, you really have to strive for it. And, you know, as you correctly pointed out, um, in, in the absence of a security council level response, we've really seen some impressive creativity by member states within the general assembly, within the human rights council over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, and a lot of that creativity has also been informed by civil society and, you know, what civil society and affected populations understand about what is needed in these situations. In terms of the, the sort of challenges that you've highlighted and the enduring issues with responding to atrocity crimes, how does our work at the Global Center aim to address many of these issues? So I think that our the way we address many of these situations is to think about them holistically. I think that again the the impulse within the international system is to think in terms of narrow responses, to think in terms of sort of the the political resolution or sort of thinking about it in a technical way, but you know, for lasting peace, we need transformation. And that transformation can only happen if the if the peace uh, is a just peace, is a peace which is inclusive, which builds trust and leaves no one behind. So for our work, I think that, you know, there are a few things that we do well and, and, and we have consistently done them is that first of all, I mean, as I said in my previous answer, the sort of knee-jerk reaction is to look at situations from, you know, entrenched frameworks. And our uh, work very much sort of tries to break these entrenched frameworks. Um, We try to change the narrative on situations. So from, you know, and I remember, I think that Jackie, you remember that how, you know, Carr was sort of very much uh, characterized as a situation which was a security sector problem issue. It was a law and order issue. And nobody was sort of characterizing it in the context of what it was, that it was a developing situation where atrocity crimes were already occurring and more were likely. And this was sort of a conflict which had rose out of, you know, I mean, extreme deprivation, but also sort of manipulation of different kinds of identities. The same thing with Myanmar, where, you know, when the expulsion of the Rohingya happened, again, sort of the narrative was counterterrorism, that it is, you know, these Rohingya non-armed, uh, non-state armed group, ARSA, which had sort of attacked the, the Myanmar um, uh, police stations, and as a, I mean, Myanmar government's police station, and as a result of which, uh, you know, over 700,000 people were expelled from Myanmar. So our job essentially was to change the narrative and make it about um, that atrocities are happening and make it you know, centric to the people who were actually affected by this on people like, you know, amplify the voices and the narratives of of people who were actually facing these atrocities. So that's sort of one part of the work that we do. The other part of the work that we do very well is to sort of constantly break silos. And that has been something, you know, uh, which my work at the Global Center has uh, been very strong on is sort of breaking the silo between New York and Geneva. You know, the reason why the Global Center went ahead and 
uh, established an office in Geneva was because we felt that there was this sort of di- like there was this kind of a curtain between or I mean not even a curtain a wall between sort of these two different bubbles because they are still bubbles but sort of the the work and the information collected by Geneva mechanisms had no way to be amplified in New York and was divorced from any of the work that the Security Council does so you know our consistent effort is to bridge this gap to make sure that the the early warning because I think that this is a constant refrain that we have always heard in the work that both of us have done over the last decade and a half is that, oh, well, if if we just had early warning. And in the case of Myanmar to Ethiopia to Sudan to South Sudan to DRC to CAR to Mali, the early warning exists, you know, different UN mechanisms from special rapporteur to special mechanisms. And even the fact finding and COIs provide enough early warning of what is ongoing and what is coming. But the fact is that the system doesn't, um, you know, pay attention to it. So our job essentially is to amplify it, to break that silo. Um, So that's one part of breaking the silo. But the other part of breaking the silo is to also look at protection holistically. I think there are so many different protection agendas within the UN and multilateral systems. And many a times they, you know, not that they work against each other, but they just work, you know, very individually. And I think that for us, it's so important to bring together um, WPS, which is, you know, Women, Peace and Security, to think very uh, systematically and very consciously and intentionally about gender, to think about, you know, children in armed conflict, to think about how protection of civilians within armed conflict and within peacekeeping missions actually interacts with um, prevention of atrocity crimes. And again, something that, you know, both of us have always talked about is the sort of the different distinctions around terminology that the international system is very good at creating is that, you know, how protection of civilians is different from protection of populations. And and what does that all mean in the end in terms of implementation? Um, so, I mean, you know, again, sort of that from there, I would just like to also say that how we sort of look at affected communities. Um, so the work of the Global Center, as I was saying, so one is sort of, you know, changing the narrative and making it, you know, atrocity centric focus. Um, and then sort of the other part is breaking silos. But sort of the fourth part of the Global Center, which we want to do more and more, is to sort of center the voices of affected communities, survivors, human rights defenders, um, and civil society organizations uh, based on at a national level and a regional level to sort of unpack the or, you know, open the black box of the United Nations to sort of, you know, uh, help them navigate the system, which is a complicated system for anybody who is outside of it. Um, And again, I mean, and that is so important because if we are really talking about transformation, we have to take into account the people who are most affected by it. And unfortunately, like the one thing I would like to bring in this discussion is the fact that how international communities still, I mean, of course, it's a state-centric system. So the international community, when we are talking about prevention of atrocity crimes or, or conflict resolution or peace processes, we are still very much in the model of looking at political elites. And what we are seeing in most situations around the world right now, from DRC to South Sudan, even in Myanmar, that what is actually needed is consistent, substantive, and 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 really uh, 
you know, really like in-depth participation of the affected communities, of the human rights uh, uh, defenders, and of the voices of the people uh, of that particular country. So our work is, you know, around those kinds of sort of broad themes, and I hope that um, it can transform the way uh, the international system uh, responds to atrocities. I think that's such an important point, um, you know, and especially as you're bringing these voices in, you're really getting the full nuance of a society, of a country, the full breadth of populations um, <clears throat> that are affected by atrocities. Because to go to, um, you know, what you were saying about terminology, semantics, about populations versus civilians, is that when you when you kind of solidify a definition of these terms it um it helps in creating a catch all right there's no member of society who's who's left out of the protection narrative but it also means that to some degree everyone is their individuality is because they're just part of this um unified homogenous population as opposed to you know understanding the nuance of different identities um whether it be children women lgbtq men um particular ethnic groups and so forth so um i think this uh, this work on inclusion of affected communities is really important no absolutely jackie and that's such a important point uh, as you know in the journey of us understanding how we um, make atrocity prevention even more effective. Because, I mean, even with um, uh, gender, I mean, there's such a conflation within the United Nations with sort of using gender and women as interchangeably. Uh, but, you know, gender is gender is many, many different kinds of genders, 34 genders, 37 genders. So I think that it's so important for us to think about populations not as a monolith, um, you know, I mean, early in the work of the Global Center and early in the work that I have done, the advocacy that I have done for the Global Center, it was very obvious to me that governments are not monoliths either. That, you know, when you're trying to get uh, uh, international response ongoing or when we are trying to sort of, you know, get a particular mechanism adopted or getting a, a resolution through, you talk to different parts of the government because you might find champions elsewhere uh, who might push the system in a particular way. In the same way, as you said, populations is a catch-all phrase. And at the time of the conception of R2P, that was an important um, that was an important conceptualization because you're not talking about civilians, you're not talking about citizens, you're talking about populations, everybody which is who's in within your border. So that also included combatants. Um, but uh, I think that the problem with those catch-all phrases is that then it takes away the uniqueness of the risks which different parts of the populations face um, within, you know, in the context of atrocity crimes. And as you said, I mean, you know, your experience of atrocity crimes is different if you're of a certain gender and the atrocity crimes committed against you are also different based on your gender, based on your identity, based on, you know, all the, the intersectionality that creates an individual. I think that here I also want to sort of bring in the fact that, you know, the I mean, R2P and the international system, I think, has also shied away from inclusion of indigenous populations in the discourses around atrocity prevention. I mean, 
you know, the, the first known sort of or documented genocides were created essentially against indigenous populations from around the world. Um, but the way the system or the way the terminology around atrocity prevention has been developed is that we ignore the experiences of indigenous populations. And, you know, as we have learned within atrocity prevention, that unless until you acknowledge the the crimes of the past, the, the, the experiences of the past, you cannot sort of course correct or or embrace transformation. So I think that that's also something that, you know, the R2P community, the atrocity community community must be thinking about. I think the the move towards um, intersectionality, the move towards talking about these uh, questions holistically is so important and holistically, but at the same time, you know, in a disaggregated way so that we understand the, the unique needs of different parts of populations in a particular situation. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one thing that the Global Center has done through the years, which I think largely um, has been central to to your work, is kind of working across various different levels of actors um, to to institutionalize, to build champions, to... Um, to really kind of reinforce what we're learning as an organization with actors who can actually put it into motion somewhere. Um, you know, you mentioned how earlier about how um, a lot of champions get sort of rotated out. We'll have a really strong champion within one government um, and then they'll become ambassador somewhere else. And you feel like you need to start over again. And so one thing um, the Global Center has done uh, to try and overcome this, and you have been central to that, is really working on harnessing communities of commitment and building institutions within governments through really trying to um, engender a government-wide commitment to R2P and atrocity prevention. Um, and I think the clearest example of that is the global network of R2P focal points, um, which you have been a strong champion of since it was formed in 2011. Uh, but we have many other examples uh, from the Global Center working with the group of friends of R2P and the International Coalition for R2P. So I'm wondering, what are some of your main lessons learned from working across such a huge diversity of actors and different groups um, as we kind of foster R2P and foster response to atrocity situations? So the lesson that I have learned, I think that as you just very rightly said, working with different kinds of stakeholders from governments to civil society is that individuals matter and individuals can change the world. And I've seen this um, with governments where, you know, one ambassador or a UN or an expert at a UN mission, either in New York or Geneva or uh, expert in capital or, you know, uh, a director for UN affairs, I mean, or women's rights or human rights can really change the way a government can respond to a particular situation, can frame a particular situation, can really provide the, the most important thing needed uh, in terms of the response from, a, from uh, the international community. 
And in the context of sort of working with civil society actors, it's always been inspirational. And and it's always been inspirational because I think that for me, you know, I work at the Global Center. Of course, this work is not just a career. It's a calling for many of us. But it's still a career in the sense that, you know, you're able to do your work, you're able to go home. We live in, you know, nice uh in, in cities where we have all our services in terms of healthcare and, and everything. But the people oftentimes who we work with are really sort of at the front lines of, of any of the situation. They are the people who are um, fighting for their own future, fighting for the future of their loved ones. Many times they're advocating to get their loved ones free from, you know, horrible um you know, situations and they're in jails, they have disappeared. So it's so important to sort of constantly, the lesson that I've learned from working with, with these populations is to really sort of listen to them and to really um, take into account uh, the way they outline a particular situation in any kind of policy response that we are advocating for. Because if we are not taking what they are saying into account, anything that we craft or that we advocate for will not uh, really transform the situation, will not really affect that situation, will not be as effective. So those are sort of, you know, some of the lessons that I've learned that, you know, one thing is that individuals are important. And the second thing is that really listen to people who are the most important stakeholders in this entire endeavor, which is the the people who are affected uh, by these situations. And if you're not taking that into account, you're not really uh, doing your work well. And sort of the final thought of this is that, you know, our job within the the international system, because, you know, we we do sit in this international bubble, um, is to, again, amplify these voices and, and to never be extractive to be always very mindful that this is not this is about people's lives really this is this is something which is you know at the core of of what many people live through um, on a day-to-day level thank you for joining us for this episode of expert voices on atrocity prevention if you enjoyed this episode we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts soundcloud or spotify and we'd be grateful if you left us a review For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at www.globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.